coming up next on this episode of the Unlock You podcast. I encourage clients to think about their financial lives uh, like a balance sheet. So individuals like companies have balance sheets, their assets, their liabilities, companies, they can be tangible or intangible. I really encourage people to spend a lot of time thinking about the liability side of the balance sheet. And that's not just mortgages and tuition payments and things like that. It can be aspirational. It can be, I want to live in a certain way. I want to retire at a certain age and live in a certain place. I want to be philanthropic. I want to leave money for the kids. Th those are all liabilities in a, in a general sense of the work. Understanding what those liabilities are and having a good wrapper on them enables you to be much more effective at allocating the asset side of the balance sheet. And then write that down. Hey friends, thanks so much for joining us. This is Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. I'm a clinical psychologist, leadership consultant, and a really big fan of you getting to fulfill your life purpose. I want you to get unstuck and unlock your potential relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and vocationally. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to be with Scott Clemens today. I was at a fancy schmancy business conference, and he was one of the keynotes, and my jaw was on the floor. Scott Clemens is an economist, and he is based in New York City, although currently he is in upstate Connecticut, enjoying mm -hmm. some leisure with family and music and great wine and old history books because he is brilliant and it really helps him as an economist know how to recognize trends. So he is our guest today. He joined Brown Brothers Harmon and Co. in 1990 and has held a variety of investment roles at the firm over the past 32 years. Scott started his career as a portfolio manager of European and domestic equities before stepping into a leadership role in the New York office of the firm's private banking business in 2005. In 2010, he is appointed chief investment strategist and is today one of the firm's primary writers and speakers on topics related to the economy, financial markets, and investing. Scott is a frequent contributor to print and broadcast media and appears regularly in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times, and Camera at CNBC, Bloomberg, and CNN. Wow, Scott is a charted financial analyst, a member of the New York Society of Security Analyst and CFA Institute. Outside of his professional interests, Scott serves as a trustee of the Rare Book School at the University of Virginia, the Morgan Library and Museum in New York, and the Research Corporate for Science Advancement, the nation's oldest foundation dedicated to the support of basic scientific research. Born and raised in Florida, he is a magna cum laude graduate of Princeton University and lived in Manhattan and lives in Manhattan with his family with his banjo, guitar, and old books. So thank you so much for saying yes to this. I feel incredibly honored that you would say yes to be with a psychologist to talk about economy and how we kind of make our decisions with money through the lens of psychology. So well, Shannon, thank you for having me on. I should disclose something up front, uh, a confession, if you will. Um, I am an economist by profession, but I'm not an economist by academic background. Mm -hmm. I spent my formative undergraduate years at Princeton studying classics. So I graduated from Princeton with a deep knowledge of Latin and Greek, but I did not know what a yield curve was. I learned <laughs> all of that when I got to Wall Street. But the one observation 
that I would make from that, we think about the word economy or economist. It comes from a Greek word that literally means household. So today we think of the economy as being this abstract, abstruse thing with all kinds of acronyms and things that are hard to understand. And it's not, or it shouldn't be, because our economy, all 335 million of us and $27 trillion of GDP, is just a way of measuring human interaction. And I like to remember that as an economist because it brings it back down to a very familiar and familial level even, and it also brings it down to a very psychological level as well. All of that GDP is just a way of measuring how people interact with each other. That's brilliant. Can you unpack that more for us? Because off camera, you were saying something brilliant of how we have those topics we don't talk about in polite society. Um, so we don't talk about politics and religion and sex, but you also highlighted we don't talk about... We don't talk about money. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 and I've observed something very interesting in my own practice of advising wealthy families. And interestingly enough, there's an inverse relationship there. The less money a family has, the more they talk about it. Mm -hmm. So a family that's trying to make ends meet talks about money around the dining table, about whether or not there's money to go to camp in the summer, whether or not there's money uh, for new school clothes. I mean, money is a frequent topic of conversation. Families that have an extraordinary amount of money, it, it's, it's almost taboo. They don't, they don't want to talk about it. Whereas in reality, what I spend a lot of my time doing with the wealthy families that we advise is saying to them, you have to talk about it. Money is a, uh, is a force of good or a force of bad. Make it a force of good in your family. And that's a statement about philanthropy. It's a statement about stewardship. Mm. It's a statement about all those things. But of course, if there's a psychological element to money to start with, add family to it. And yeah. the psychology just goes on steroids because now yeah. you've got all the baggage, good or bad, that comes with families talking about money. Oh, that's brilliant. And how do you think our psychology is intertwined in our decision-making regarding money and finance? Well, one of the biggest developments in that intersection of psychology and money started taking place about a generation ago, and, and it started taking place on my alma mater's campus in the psychology department at Princeton. So psychologist there by the name of Daniel Kahneman, and Professor Kahneman was studying the concept of what psychologists call bounded rationality, which, which is essentially the observation that we're pretty rational decision makers in general, but not always. There are limits to that. Kahneman's insight was that we really make a lot of mistakes under two conditions. When we don't have a complete set of information that we would like to have to make a really good decision, and we have to make the decision under time constraints. And Kahneman's aha moment was that those two conditions, imperfect information and time constraints, pretty much define financial markets. An investor never has a complete set of information that she would want in order to buy a stock or a bond. And markets open. What are we doing? Are we buying? Are we selling? Are we trading? And so Kahneman and, and, and his colleagues began looking into how those mistakes happen. And what they found, interestingly, is that they are very predictable and very repetitive. And, and they, they all tend to fall into this category of, of shortcuts. So we don't have enough information, we don't have enough time, and so our minds, this is subconscious, it's unintentional, take shortcuts for decision-making. It's I want to be very clear, it's not evidence of sloppy decision-making, it's not an evidence of an inferior intellect, it's evidence of being a member of the Homo sapiens species, yeah. because these are evolutionary traits that have developed, and they're very 
helpful in the survival of the species. It's only when we allow our minds to knee jerk into taking those shortcuts, when we ought to slow down and stop and think, that's when bad decisions happen to good people. And 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 32 years as an investor, I've seen it again and again and again and again. I see it in my own decision making. It's not something you ever quite fully conquer, but just being aware of it can be more than half the battle. Oh my goodness, that is brilliant. And so what our term for that is called heuristic, that mental shortcut yeah. where the brain just cuts into what is my knee-jerk reaction, which is housed by more of the midbrain. So that lower functioning of just surviving the next 10 minutes. And so I think that's why a lot of sales pitches have that time duress to your point that it yeah. causes us to bypass the prefrontal and go back to that more primal region of the brain. That's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Well, and, and I'm, 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 I'm going to throw another Greek etymology at you again. You can take the boy out of the classics department, <laughs> but you can't take classics out of the boy. So that, that term you used, heuristics, is, is another term that comes from the Greek. And you may remember the old story of the Greek philosopher and scientist Archimedes mm -hmm. discovering the principle of water displacement when he filled up his bathtub one night and he got into it and the water sloshed over the side. And he discovered the theory of water displacement. You may remember what he did next. He leapt to his feet and ran naked down the streets of Athens shouting the Greek word, Eureka. <laughs> I have found it. So a heuristic is simply a shortcut for finding something. We are all Archimedes running down the streets saying subconsciously, <laughs> I have found it. I don't need to slow down and stop and think I have found it. So as an example of this, think about a, a bias or a heuristic that's often referred to as the representativeness bias. That's a mouthful. It's a very simple concept. It's simply the assumption that things which share similar qualities are alike. They're identical. We categorize things. We stereotype things. Well, think about a prehistorical context. I didn't want to stop and think about whether or not the growl of that animal represented danger. Yeah. That bias, that heuristic that kicked in saved my soul. And it saved the human species. So that representativeness bias, again, it's an, it's an important part of our, of our uh, development, of our, our humanity, even in a very literal sense. But when you, try, when you give into that bias in the modern world, you give into the bias of thinking that uh, just because um, it's a good company, it must be a good stock without stopping and thinking about valuations, mm. or because it's a good product, it must be a good stock without thinking about, are we actually making money selling that? product. I mean, that's an example of how that representativeness bias can work against you. And, and of course, this would be a whole different conversation, but all of the evils of racism mm -hmm. are embedded in that heuristic that says representativeness is I immediately sort people by the color of their skin or where they're yeah. from. I mean, another example of how representativeness can be uh, very, very damaging. The example that I often use with, with um, some of my clients is I say, if I took a coin out of my pocket, and flipped it six times in a row, what would be the more probable outcome? Heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails, alternating heads and tails, or six heads in a row? Well, you, you immediately, if you think about the act of thinking, your immediate reaction is, well, well, clearly, alternating heads and tails would be more probable, because that represents what you know to be a random process, flipping a coin. But if you stop and think about it and remember that the coin has no memory, 
the probability of every single flip is exactly 50%, both of those are equally probable outcomes. So it is very easy to confuse plausibility with probability. If I flipped a coin six times in a row and it was all heads, that doesn't sound very plausible. I would want to look at that coin really closely. But as an example of how some of those shortcuts can really wrong foot us in decision-making processes, the representativeness heuristic is the one that I see all the time, all the time. So how would somebody recognize that in their investment strategy? I, I think slowing down is probably the most important thing to do. And that's very difficult because we're all, and particularly type A personalities like us, are just like, we've got a to-do list that's longer than both of our arms put together, and we got to get stuff done. We're eager to make a decision rather than make a right decision. Um, I, I'm very fond, one of the um, printers that I collect in my rare book collection is a printer from uh, 15th century Venice by the name of Aldus Minutius. And his printer's mark, his logo, if you will, is a, um, a, an anchor with a dolphin sort of wrapped around it. And often attached to that logo is the Latin phrase, festina lente, make haste slowly. And he used that, that logo of the dolphin and anchor because he, and then he, we know this from letters that he wrote to people, he would say the, the dolphin symbolizes speed of production, but the anchor symbolizes stability of purpose. So just recognizing, shedding a little light on it and, and, and asking yourself and thinking about the act of thinking mm -hmm. is itself one of the most effective tools in, in uh, interrupting that, that shortcut, that heuristic, that knee-jerk subconscious reaction that might otherwise lead you astray. That's so good. So if we're recognizing I'm under the gun, I'm making decisions rather than the right decision, then it's a good time to pull back and then to reset. What are some good ways that you found helping your clients to kind of reset and then reassess the actual market value of the investment strategy rather than just the impulse or the representative, representative, I didn't know that word, representative bias. <laughs> That's a mouthful. That was a mouthful. Uh, one, one of the things that we do with our clients, and I think it's good practice, it's not unique to Brown Brothers Harriman, um, is to upfront establish what success looks like. Mm -hmm. And it usually takes the form of a statement of investment objectives or an investment policy statement or something like that. And, and, and we do it institutionally. You don't need an institutional advisor to pull up a Word document or a piece of paper and write down what does success look like in the long run. Um, and, and what I find is that um, if you really think about that, the common definitions of success don't hold. So in the investment world, you think, well, I want to beat the S&P 500. I, I mean, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but the S&P 500 does not know you. It does not care about you and your goals. I'm, I'm reminded of that old adage that you have to be really careful what you aim at because you might actually hit it and discover that you've been aiming at the wrong thing. So I encourage clients to think about their financial lives uh, like a balance sheet. So individuals like companies have balance sheets, their assets, their liabilities, like companies, they can be tangible or intangible. I really encourage people to spend a lot of time thinking about the liability side of the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And that's not just mortgages and tuition payments and things like that. It can be aspirational. It can be, I want to live in a certain way. I want to retire at a certain age and live in a certain place. I want to be philanthropic. I want to leave money for the kids. Th those are all liabilities in a, in a general sense of the word. 
Understanding what those liabilities are and having a good wrapper on them enables you to be much more effective at allocating the asset side of the balance sheet. And then write that down. Write down what those long-term definitions of success are. And what that helps to do is it helps to immunize you from overreacting to short-term market movements. Mm -hmm. So you wake up in the morning and, and as we're doing this podcast today, the market is down today. And, and, and you might look at that and say, oh my goodness, the market's down X hundred points. Surely I should do something. Having that document, that investment policy statement slows it down. What it, what it literally acts as is a letter from a calm, rational you to a future you that is disrupted and panicked and anxious and irrational. And it's that former you saying, hey, Scott, Shannon, remember why you're investing. You're investing because you want the ability to retire. You want to be helpful in your community. You want your children to go to college and graduate without student loans. Ah, okay. Well, in that bigger context of how I've defined investment success, maybe the right thing to do is to do nothing. That could be a very, very difficult thing to do. But having that documentation is one way to, 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 to vaccinate yourself against the threat of your own mind <laughs> being, being your own worst enemy. Absolutely. So what do you do in a situation where maybe it really is a bad investment or it really is a rough time and there is kind of a cautionary heating of maybe we do need to exit some of these things? How would yeah. you recommend somebody going about making that decision? So it's not knee yeah. jerk, but it is yeah. thought out. Well, there, there's another uh, common behavioral heuristic that we see, which, which I, I, I think a lot of your, your viewers will know is the sunk cost fallacy. So, you know, you buy a stock at $50, it goes down to 25. And your, your subconscious bias, you find yourself saying, well, I'll sell it when it gets back up to 50. As, as if the stock is out to get you or something. You know, I mean, I, you know, that, the psychology of that's really interesting. Whereas that past decision is a sunk cost. It's done. In, in the absence of a time machine, you can't go back and undo it. So to stop and rationally, slowly think about, all right, what, what is the fact pattern in front of me now? And is selling the stock the right thing? And it may be if the company's underlying fundamentals have deteriorated, they've lost a CEO, they've lost a big contract. If there are new facts that you did not know when you made the original purchase, that's the hand that you've been dealt. And that's the hand that you should therefore play. The hard thing about that is that, that regret avoidance is a really powerful phenomenon. You don't want to feel like you're stupid. And if you bought the stock at 50 and you sell it at 25, not only have you locked in a loss, you've locked, locked in a mistake. Mm -hmm. The best investors that I know and have ever worked with have enough psychological awareness not to let that drag them down and, and, and to not focus on the past and those sunk costs and instead focus on starting today and going forward, uh, what is the right thing to do? Here too, again, I find that writing things down is very, very important. The professional investors that I work with, when they make that purchase decision, they will document and, and share with colleagues. So there's peer review. I'm making this decision today because here's what I believe today. And that prevents you from revisiting history and revising history and say, well, what I really expected was this. And you come up with an alternative history that just was not the case. And again, that's your mind kind of playing tricks on you. Um, 
I'm a big fan of writing things down, as you can tell. I have prodigious notebooks from past investment decisions and try to learn from the mistakes and try to learn from the successes as well. The mistakes are better teachers, although the lessons can sometimes be quite painful. Yes, absolutely. And I love the quote by Warren Buffett that when everyone else, when the water's going out, then that's when you actually want to buy. I think I'm slaughtering his quote, but it's like doing the inverse of what everyone else is doing. What are yeah, your thoughts but, but on that? Th well, think about the psychological implications of that, because we are a herd species. Mm -hmm. We don't like to be alone. So, the, the, you know, there's there's another old uh, cliched adage in investing that the secret of success is actually pretty straightforward. You just buy low and sell high. How hard is that? Well, what they don't teach you is that if you're doing it right, neither of those things should feel comfortable. It really feels awful to buy yes. low. I mean, think about the work, think about, um, you know, late March of 2020. We're all working from our couches. None of us had any idea what's going on. There is no historical context for this. Yeah. The market is in free fall. It is a plausible scenario that the world is literally coming to an end. Mm -hmm. They were building a field hospital in Central Park in Manhattan. Awful, awful investment environment. From March 23rd of 2020 through January 1st of 2022, the S&P 500 went up 120%. The right day to buy, in retrospect, and there's no bell that sounds at the bottom of a market, yeah. but the low point in that market was March 23rd. If you go back and look at the headlines in any newspaper from March 23rd of 2020, you would have been an absolute idiot to be investing yeah. and you would have been a genius at the same time on the <laughs> other hand to be selling when markets are going up and up and up and up and up makes you look like a fool do you want to be the only gal at cocktail party saying well yeah i'm i'm all in cash because you know i thought things were too hot the the willingness to look like a fool Mm -hmm. I believe is an essential ingredient to investment success. Yeah. And it's really hard because we're a herd species. And again, psychology comes back into play. And this is where that combination of patience and discipline and, and, and really temperament really come in uh, to play. In, in some cases before intelligence does, to be patient and disciplined is probably more important for long-term investment success than being intelligent. I think of myself as an intelligent person, so I hate to say that, but I think it's true. I think it's true because of the psychological implications. Yeah, I love that. That's so good. So what are some takeaways and action things that you think people can apply right away in their investment and dealing with money in general? Well, a, a, a couple of things. Um, all, all of these mental shortcuts, as we've discussed, are, are innate to, to who we are. And the bad news is we can't change them. They're, they're hardwired. I mean, that's the, it is what it is, but recognizing them is more than half the battle. Being willingness to sacrifice a little bit of um, apparent time efficiency on the altar of better decision making uh, usually is an investment that pays off. So, um, um, you know, I, I would encourage people to read a little bit about financial, um, uh, behavioral finance or behavioral economics. There are plenty of good books on it. I, I'm biased, but I think the best ones are written by Daniel Kahneman, um, K-A-H-N-E-M-A-N-N, who pioneered the field. And, and some of his books are very academic, but some of them are very um, uh, accessible as well. Just being curious about your own thought 
process is part of the, um, the immunization. I, I've referred already to spending some time thinking about what successful investing looks like to you. And if you are in a position where you have an investment advisor, it's very worthwhile to have that conversation with your advisor. You want to be on the same page as your advisor. So if your advisor is thinking, you know, I got to beat the market every quarter because that's how Shannon has defined success. You might want to say, no, 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 I'm a long-term investor. I don't care about beating the market every quarter. I want my balance sheet to balance. I want to be able to pursue those liabilities um, down um, the road. And then the third practical piece of advice that, that I would offer is, um, is to, to, to write things down. I mean, write that letter to yourself to prevent yourself from giving in to those um, knee-jerk biases. And they tend to resurrect in periods of market volatility, not surprisingly, in periods of uncertainty, in periods of disruption, be it financial, investing, geopolitical. I mean, as we sit here today, there's a war taking place in Eastern Europe. Inflation is running rampant. There's a midterm election coming up. I think we're out of COVID-19, but maybe not. I mean, there's there's so much uncertainty out there. All of these sort of behavioral biases come to the fore. Writing things down, just the act of that alone, often helps to immunize yourself against giving into some of those, the worst of those um, biases. And I think it would, again, be swimming upstream because everybody else who is responding based on that amygdala knee-jerk reaction, and you're trying to soothe and calm and think through the long-term strategy, which is reactivating that prefrontal. So I love that visual reminder yeah. of the calm you who's written a letter to the freaking out you that doesn't yeah. want to just be a lemming and go along with culture that's freaking out. Yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. We have to have you back. This has been so <laughs> fascinating. And uh, we will put links. How can people connect with you if you even want them to? Sure. So every everything that I write um, for my clients at Brown Brothers Harriman is on our website, and it's not behind a paywall. And that's just www.bbh, as in Brown Brothers Harriman, dot com. Um, and I think if you click on insights, um, uh, more often than not, they're written by me. So I'm happy to have people follow along that way. So cool. I love it. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a privilege. We are this grateful for your time. Thanks. Thank Bye, you. everybody. Thanks, and we'll see you for the next episode. Hey, thanks so much for watching this episode of Unlock You. It is our dream to invest in you. And one of the ways you can do that is by getting more of the bonus material, the content, and to know about future events. Head to the website, drshannoncrawford.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and you'll be the first to know what we're rolling out. And we want you to truly get unlocked so that you can thrive, not only for yourself, but also for the greater calling on your life. Let's link arms and do it together. See you in the next episode.